The Cape Up Podcast is sponsored by T. Rowe Price. Are you looking to learn a thing or two about getting your finances in order, saving, and investing? Check out The Confident Wallet, a personal finance podcast series by T. Rowe Price and the Washington Post Brand Studio. Coming soon to wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and welcome to Cape Up. North Korea, America's standing in the world, the travel ban, terrorism, foreign and domestic, and Robert Mueller. Lisa Monaco was President Obama's Homeland Security Advisor. She was Bob Mueller's Chief of Staff when he was Director of the FBI. Hear what she has to say on all of these topics right now. Lisa Monaco, thank you very much for being on the podcast. Good to be here. So when... I sat in on a meeting with then National Security Advisor Susan Rice. It was her last interview with the press. It was January 18th, 2017, in her West Wing office. And she was asked, what's going to be the number one issue facing the incoming administration? And without hesitation, she said, North Korea. Was that the case then to your mind? And is it still the case now? Uh, Well, I think it was certainly the case then. Uh, And it was, and that position is supported also by the fact that it is what President, then President Obama, told then President-elect Trump would be the most urgent national security issue facing his new administration. That is what President Obama told the President-elect, and I think that's borne out. Uh, From my perspective, I had the counterterrorism and homeland security job in the White House. I had a whole range of concerns. So if you ask me what's the one thing that you're concerned about or your successor should be concerned about, there's going to be a whole range of issues every day that are going to be flooding their inbox or his inbox. But certainly it is the case that North Korea uh, then and now is probably the most urgent national security issue. And that is owing to the very, uh, I think, uh, erratic and a volatile uh, situation we see in the escalation of the rhetoric on both sides. Right. And, and, and you know, the volatility, mm-hmm. we're, we're used to seeing or we used to be used to seeing the volatility coming from the n- northern part of the Korean peninsula. And now we're in a situation where um, the president of the United States tweets things, says things. Uh, little rocket man. How legitimate is that concern of the American people that the rhetoric from the American president could lead to um, war between the United States and North Korea? I think the danger that we should be concerned about and what we what we should be focused on is the danger of miscalculation and escalation from uh, this war of words that we're seeing. And you're quite right. Um, The North Korean regime, whether it's Kim Jong-il or uh, now uh, his son, Kim Jong-un, there was a pattern of escalatory rhetoric and actions. We've seen a steady um, march of missile tests, obviously the first uh, nuclear test done in 2006, right, well before the Obama administration. Uh, So we've seen a steady march in trying to attain a capability to threaten the West and certainly already to to threaten um, the regional neighbors. Um, And we've seen a pattern in the North Korean regime 
uh, escalate its testing and its rhetoric to try and elicit some responses, right? And what President Obama and others have uh, put in place what was termed strategic patience to not kind of get drawn into that cycle of escalation and concession by the West. And, you know, we can debate and it's covered lots of uh, inches and uh, lots of uh, ink has been spilled on the wisdom of a strategic patience approach. So put that to the side. Mm -hmm. What we do have, though, now is an escalation of words on both sides. One thing I would say, the most recent uh, thing that we're, we're seeing is this series of tweets by President Trump um, on the nuclear capability and this issue of whose nuclear button right. is bigger. Now, leaving aside the fact that there is not a nuclear button per sitting right. on the uh, on the presidential desk in in uh, the Oval Office, uh, but I do think it is concerning when you have uh, a discussion about nuclear weapons that is done in this kind of volatile fashion. You've seen over decades presidents of both parties try to be exceedingly precise and reserved in how they message about nuclear capabilities. Uh, and we're seeing a real departure from that and in this uh, administration. And that, I think, can be dangerous because you have a danger of miscalculation mm -hmm. by the North Korean regime. And, you know, the... The other side of the argument is, well, um, it's a show of strength and a show of willingness to uh, kind of put your money where your mouth is, so to speak, in, in terms of the rhetoric and making very clear uh, where uh, the U.S. government stands. On the one hand, uh, our being very clear that we have a military capability, which of course we do, uh, that is one very important ingredient to deterrence. Right to deter the North Koreans from using their capability. So we ought to, in my view, have a very strong, clear message about our military capability. That is different, I think, uh, to have Secretary Mattis go out and make the statements he's had uh, about our strong military capability and our resolve. I think that is to the good. Uh, but to be kind of shoot from the hip with tweets about... Uh, from the president of the United States about our nuclear button size, I think is is a different kind of messaging that we haven't seen before uh, from a president of the United States, and there's a danger of of escalation and miscalculation. Um, from what you from what you might know about the the North Korean regime um, and Kim Jong Un or just the folks around him, um, do you have any sense of how those tweets land? over there in North Korea, whether they think um, the president has lost it or whether they think the president is a madman from a, a a good perspective in that, oh, wow, this guy, maybe he is crazy enough to do this. Or do they think he's a madman, meaning like he is he is unhinged and un, uh, illogical? I think there's a few things we can say about what we're seeing out of the North Korean regime at this stage. Uh, one is a desire to sow discord or to, to drive a wedge between the United States and our allies in the region, right? So you see them making an overture to the South and the South trying to reciprocate and vice versa. Uh, that not being done in coordination with the United States, basically putting the United States to the sideline uh, on that type of an overture, 
Uh, and as far as we know, there being no coordination between the United States and the South about how the South responds to that overture, uh, I think that leaves us on the sidelines in a very critical moment. And, and that's concerning, mm-hmm. right? And it is to, uh, I think we know that North Korea wants to drive a wedge between the U.S. and Japan and South Korea. And, and so we're, we're seeing a little bit of that take hold. Uh, and we also know historically that uh, Kim Jong-un and his predecessor want to be seen by their people as a grand uh, kind of strategizer and world power. And so to be in a dialogue, on, albeit on Twitter, mm-hmm. between Kim Jong-un and the president of the United States, that can't help but elevate Kim Jong-un in the eyes of his people. Uh, and, you know, is that something we really want to be doing? I that, would say no. And that's a good point. You know, when and I'm glad you brought up the fact that, you know, the, the talks, the direct talks between North Korea and South Korea, I, I seem to recall that when that news was made or broken, that there were people from the, the Trump administration saying that the president deserved credit for that. But given the analysis you just gave, the idea that the North and South are talking not in coordination with or con- consultation with the United States is actually a, a, it, it's a it's not a good thing from a U.S. national security perspective. It, it's at least a potential missed opportunity. Right. So, uh, look, I'm not privy to everything I'm telling you is based on uh, what I'm reading in the paper. Mm -hmm. I don't know uh, what discussions uh, are going on. I'm kind of taking uh, the news as it comes. But everything we've seen, both from the White House, from Nikki Haley, from the president himself, does not indicate that this is part of a strategy to uh, get us to to talks and to be part of those Mm -hmm. talks. Right. So, uh, you know, the South's overture to the North and vice versa, that at the very least is an opportunity that we ought to be taking advantage of uh, to try and feed into and be a part of and, and be doing that in consultation with our allies, with Japan, with the South. Uh, otherwise, we're on the sidelines, which is a, which is a strange thing mm-hmm. for the United States, uh, which has invested so much in trying to both deter uh, the nuclear growth and the capability of North Korea to uh, ensure that China is uh, playing a useful part in um, in uh, deterring uh, the North Korean nuclear capability that the that the South uh, has the assurance that its U.S. ally will be there of. Uh, uh, as a matter of its security, uh, same with with Japan. But yet we see ourselves. It seems like we are on the outside looking in mm-hmm. at those potential discussions. Before I turn to to uh, your your bailiwick, homeland security mm-hmm. and counterterrorism. One, one more question on North Korea. I remember being on on one of the MSNBC shows, and there was a, yet another North Korea had taken over the show, and. One of the things I I said off camera to a Republican strategist, I said, we have these two irrational actors who were, you know, tweeting back and forth at each other and hurling insults. And I was corrected. The Republican operative said, no, 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 no. Don't think Kim Jong-un is irrational. He's very rational because to him, protecting the regime is the most rational thing. That's that is what he's all about. And I, I see you you nodding. That's the way we need to look at this. 
the the way uh, I've described it, and other um, uh, experts uh, who I respect quite a bit have talked about this, is he is very rational within his own context. Kim Jong Un, that mm-hmm. is, which is his nuclear capability is his um, insurance, right, on the continued existence of the regime. He is not, I think, the best experts and intelligence analysts, if they were sitting here in this studio, would be telling you he is not suicidal, Mm -hmm. right? He is quite rational in trying to maintain the continued existence of the regime. That means continuing to have this nuclear capability as his hedge against anybody uh, trying to overthrow that regime uh, and to... um, to to stop his leadership. That's why this kind of war of words, I think, can be potentially dangerous to the extent he, that that being Kim Jong-un, miscalculates about we what we are or we are willing to do and at what, um, and at what point he may perceive us as being, uh, taking a, a regime change approach and being willing to do that and does that then force him to act in a way uh, to protect the regime? Mm-hmm. So that that escalatory cycle is something that we've got to be very concerned about. You you said a moment ago, you know, that it's an odd thing for the United States to be on the outside looking in when it comes to what's happening with North Korea, and that leads to the larger question of, of the United States' role in the world now after more than 70 years of being the leader of the the liberal democratic order democratic with a small d order that it seems like the united states is retreating from it seems like every leadership position that it jealously guarded um how how are the how do you think our allies are reacting to a situation where for the first time they probably don't think they can depend on the United States. I suspect they're concerned, confused. Uh, Richard Haas has written about this, I think, quite well in talking about uh, whether the U.S. is is basically abdicating its decades-old role of being a leader of the liberal international order. I think you can look around the world and see evidence of this confusion and concern on the part of our allies. Angela Merkel saying very publicly last summer that Europe and um, the kind of post-World War II order that was created in European leaders are going to have to not uh, think that they can automatically rely on the United States and they're going to have to, in I'm paraphrasing now, kind of fend for themselves, mm-hmm. right? You can kind of look across the world. You see us isolated in the UN mm-hmm. uh, uh, as a result of this um, uh, this move on uh, the uh, designation of, of Jerusalem as a capital. You know, going away from um, years and years of diplomacy and position of the United States that the status of Jerusalem should be uh, a matter for the for the parties in the final talks. Uh, now. Whatever you think, and it's completely legitimate view uh, to take the position that the capital uh, or the embassy should be moved at some point, that's been in platforms across uh, administrations, right, uh, Republican and Democrat, but to not seemingly have any strategy for it, right, puts us in a position where we are isolated in a UN vote where some 
160 plus countries vote against the United States or abstain, right? Mm-hmm. It's never happened before. Um, so you see us pulling out of the Paris Climate Accord, right? Again, where where con- every country in the world, to include Syria, uh, right. is part of uh, is part of this arrangement, and we are on the outside, pulling out of uh, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which uh, you know, contrary to uh, what is our kind of stated goal and stated interest, which is to improve our trade capabilities and um, leverage in the region. We find China now moving into that vacuum and having um, uh, trade arrangements with uh, people in the region, countries in the region, that again have us on the outside looking in. That, I think, uh, is a real change from decades and decades of U.S. leadership. Another change in, in decades of U.S. leadership is the seeming comfort the current president has with autocratic leaders. So from Vladimir Putin in Russia, Duterte in the Philippines, um, um, the the king of, of Saudi Arabia. But he seems to have warm relationships with these folks who can run and rule their nations pretty much by fiat. How much does that um, overlay what you were just talking about in terms of destabilizing the the um, the global the liberal international order as we once knew it. People use allies, partners, sometimes interchangeably. There's a difference, right? Uh, we have NATO allies with whom we have a commitment to come to their aid if they're um, if they are under attack, right? Um, and we have other non-allies, but partners with whom we will, um, you know, engage in support, et cetera. So these are important distinctions, and they're important relationships. So, for instance, our NATO allies in Europe, I think, have to find themselves wondering if the president of the United States is showing more favor to Vladimir Putin. Uh, than he is to some of our NATO allies and the leaders of those countries, well, is are our NATO allies now going to wonder about our the United States' commitment to come to their aid, mm-hmm. to, to be a guarantor, as we frankly have been, as the United States has been for decades in the post-World War II order? Well, and I'm thinking as you're speaking, I'm thinking of the Baltic states and one of the another person who has been on the podcast um, is uh, President Kersti Kalulite of Estonia. Mm-hmm. And I asked her flat out, are you are you still confident that the United States um, will come to your aid if Russia rolls over the border? And she said, I am I am confident uh, in NATO. Mm. Um, and so I, I just wonder a year out, maybe I'll see her in, in Brussels in March and I'll ask her, how are, are you still comfortable? Um, but it's interesting you say that, Jonathan. I traveled to Estonia uh, several years ago, actually, with then director uh, Bob Mueller of the FBI when I was his chief of staff. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, I remember the kind of unequivocal statements from the Estonian leaders, uh, both political leaders and their security heads with whom we, we met, who said, we love the United States. We, uh, you know, w- we view you as uh, some of our most important partners. And this goes back, of course, to when President Reagan uh, was uh, so lauded in uh, Estonia mm-hmm. because of uh, the protection and the support that uh, the Estonian people believe they received from 
from the United States in response to Russian aggression. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to come to Bob Mueller Mm -hmm. a a little bit later. Let's talk about um, what your your big job was in in the Obama administration. You were assistant to the president uh, for uh, homeland homeland security and um, counterterrorism, which means you were the homeland security advisor. Uh, I think uh, I read somewhere that President Obama gave you the nickname Doctor Doom because whenever he saw, if he saw you, that meant something bad had happened. That's right. And, and for someone with such a, an intense job, you don't carry it on like you don't you don't look wizened or or like you, you. you're scared witless. <laughs> But when you were in the job, what was the what were the one, two or three things that you most worried about uh, from day to day? So uh, as you as you rightly point out, my uh, job responsibilities ranged from all manner of homeland security threats to counterterrorism. So that meant everything from terrorist attacks here in the United States to uh, those abroad that threatened our our uh, people uh, abroad to um, cyber attacks, to pandemics, to um, anything that involved public safety, mass shootings, uh, and natural disasters and man-made disasters. So it was a very uh, broad portfolio. So what I was most worried about every single day was the safety of U.S. citizens here uh, and abroad. So that meant um, a ever-present and constantly evolving terror threat going from a post 9-11 concern about catastrophic 9-11 style terrorist attacks that were externally directed at the United States to a threat that we have today, which involves inspired violence. It, It certainly still involves that type of concern about externally directed attacks, but due to incredible work by Uh, administrations, both the Bush administration, the Obama administration, uh, military, law enforcement, diplomats, you name it, I think we have done a very good job of reducing that threat of a 9-11 style attack. You'll never get somebody in my job to say never uh, when it comes to that. But what we now face is an evolved threat of inspired violence and the use of, frankly, social media and the internet to be able to radicalize individuals without them traveling and getting training, whether it's in Afghanistan, Pakistan, or Iraq and Syria. So keeping up with that uh, that type of evolving terrorist threat, which is frankly harder to detect. Uh, how do you know the challenges? How do you know what goes wrong in somebody's mind that will then, uh, with ready access to weapons in this country, be able to uh, go on a moment's notice sometimes to commit such carnage as we saw with the Pulse nightclub shooting, for mm-hmm. instance. So I was always worried and front of mind uh, to address that type of threat. But the issue, frankly, Jonathan, that I raised more often over time during my time in the White House, at the particularly in the President's daily brief, the morning meeting that I and the National Security Advisor and others met with the President every day, was the cyber threat. Hmm. Uh, It is something that has evolved uh, at a pace and a scale and a sophistication over the last several years that uh, has caused the cyber threat actually to leap ahead of the terror threat in the national estimates by the Director of National Intelligence since, I think, 2015, to put the cyber threat above the terror threat in terms of the complex threats that we face. Then the, the third thing that I would say 
that I raised very uh, clearly also with my successor in the White House was uh, my concern, my growing concern about emerging infectious disease. Mm -hmm. I think somebody in my role has always got to be worried about a bad actor, a terrorist or nation state, getting a hold of a pathogen and doing bad things with it. But what I saw over time is uh, because of a lot of changes in uh, our global structure, globalization, climate change, uh, ease of travel, travel, um, the, the likelihood of a pandemic from a that is not introduced maliciously, mm -hmm. that is naturally occurring, think Ebola, think Zika, right. or quite catastrophically a new strain of flu, that is a type of threat that I think the next administration, as I told my successor, uh, that they'll have to be prepared for. You know, back to your the the first thing, the e emerging no e evolving terrorism threat. Two strands. The first strand, um, President Trump likes to say, you know, he wants to protect the country from um, from radical Islamic terrorism by instituting a travel ban. And this travel ban doesn't have countries on there that if you want to protect the United States from terrorists, as I'm using air quotes, then why aren't countries like France, Belgium uh, on the list? And you, if I'm not if I'm not mistaken, you've signed on to an amicus brief challenging um, the, the president's travel ban. Um, talk about why why you joined that amicus mm -hmm. brief and 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 what is it about this travel ban that so moved you to act so publicly so um, the travel ban is now in its third iteration um, but you're quite right I signed on with a group of bipartisan uh, Republican and Democratic national security professionals and experts going back uh, who've had decades of experience uh, and uh, the brief that we've now filed in many cases challenging both the first iteration and successive iterations of the travel ban basically uh, does a few things. It says there's really no national security case or rationale for this ban, which is, in essence, um, banning the entry of anybody from a set of uh, first seven, later six countries. And the reason we believe that it doesn't actually address the national security threat is for a couple of reasons. One, it's both over-inclusive and it's under-inclusive, right? So, uh, and it's not, uh, I think, targeted and scoped to the actual threat. So case in point, um, you mentioned France and, and, uh, and other countries that have a, a high percentage of returnees mm -hmm. from the war theater in Iraq and Syria, individuals who are uh, p potentially French passport holders, Belgian passport holders, who travel to Iraq and Syria, uh, trained with ISIS, maybe trained with Al-Qaeda, and are now traveling back to those countries, some of which enjoy what we call visa waiver status mm -hmm. with our country. That means they don't have to apply for a visa. They can get, a, uh, get on a plane without going through a detailed visa process to come to this, United, to, to this country. So that means the threat of foreign fighters returning to their home country, namely countries in Europe, and then coming here to the United States that is a threat that we should be concerned about. Now we have very robust vetting, right. and we strengthen that in the Obama administration. So that is not a zero risk, but this travel ban doesn't get at that. 
and I don't. I personally don't think the answer is to add those countries to the ban list. The answer is to constantly be uh, revising and tailoring our vetting procedures to the actual threat. I personally believe in extremely strong, robust vetting procedures, but it ought to be informed by intelligence. It ought to be informed by the threat that we're seeing. And we made some of those changes in the Obama administration to indicate so we can discern, okay, if you are a passport holder from a visa waiver country and you have traveled to Syria and Iraq in the last uh, year, well, now you're going to have to go through a subsequent vetting process, et cetera. So my point being a broad brush approach, banning all individuals from a particular country doesn't really get at mm-hmm. the problem that we're most concerned about. The last thing I would say on this is the the challenge that we face, particularly from inspired violence from ISIS and others, uh, is one of uh, a messaging, messaging challenge, right? ISIS recruits its uh, followers based on a message that says the United States is against Islam. It is at war with the entire religion. It It is in a clash of civilizations. And it, they recruit, ISIS recruits people based on that message. If we play into that messaging by banning all travel from Muslim-majority countries without taking a more intelligence-based approach to it to get after the actual threat, well, then we're just feeding in mm-hmm. to that messaging. And we shouldn't be helping ISIS recruit. And, and the second strand of this evolving terrorism threat, I would love to get your thoughts on homegrown domestic terrorism that has nothing to do with what's happening in the Middle East, has nothing to do, however, the person wants to describe their motives to Islam or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. But... I'm thinking of folks like that, that that person who slaughtered all those people um, with submachine gun fire from the, that hotel in mm-hmm. Las Vegas um, or Charleston and the Mother Emanuel 9 yeah. and any number of other attacks that have happened here mm-hmm. uh, at home. How much of that uh, occupied your, your thoughts? Uh, it occupied uh, my time for sure because... I was concerned with uh, any type of violence, ideologically motivated violence, right? Whether it's from a perversion of Islam, uh, whether it's from uh, domestic extremist groups of any type of stripe, whether it's a sovereign citizen movement, a Ku Klux Klan, uh, environmental extremists, you name it. Mm -hmm. Um, We've seen violence perpetrated from all of those perspectives. And so that's going to be a concern of somebody in the homeland security seat. Uh, more to the point of your question, though, uh, we undertook in the Obama administration an effort to make clear that we were focused on a full range of ideologically motivated violence uh, and engaged in uh, something we called countering violent extremism. And the reason it was important to define it that way is not about being a politically correct in your messaging. It's about making sure that the communities you need most to help you, if you're in law enforcement, if you're um, in um, 
in the security field, you need the help of communities across the board because they're going to know best when something is going wrong in that community. And you don't foster that type of trust if you're being perceived, if you, the government, are perceived as focusing on only one or you're, you're stigmatizing only one community. And frankly, the, uh, the Homeland Security and law enforcement experts have told us there was, in fact, a, a, a report that was issued last March, I believe, March of 2017. The Department of Homeland Security and the FBI issued a report saying that domestic extremist groups um, are, were responsible for more deaths than any other type, white supremacist mm -hmm. domestic extremist groups were responsible for more deaths um, in the last several years than any other type of extremist group in the United States. You invoked his name, and so I have to ask you about mm -hmm. him. Robert Mueller, um, then the director of the FBI when you were his chief of staff, mm -hmm. um, now leading the the probe into um, Russian and, uh, well, when you listen to um, Republicans go after this investigation, they've been zeroing in on Mr. Mueller. And I, as someone who has worked closely with him as chief of staff, you were his deputy chief of staff before that, um, who is Robert Mueller? What kind of person is he? In terms of this, this investigation and not that you're not involved in it, and mm -hmm. I know I'm putting you in a, in, a, in a difficult spot, but in terms of how this is going about, are you surprised by how slowly it's going, or is this quintessential Mueller, and that is care, um, taking your time to make sure that all the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed, or is it about paying attention to what the, the national conversation is and moving along because people are getting impatient because they want, they want an answer. Yeah, it's so interesting. Um, as you know, Jonathan, I spent 15 years in the Justice Department before I uh, went to the White House. And uh, the majority of that time in the Justice Department was as a career prosecutor, as an assistant U.S. attorney, part of that time on the Enron Task Force. Uh, and then, of course, I spent time uh, at the FBI working for Bob Mueller. I don't think you could talk to a single federal prosecutor who would say that this prosecution and this investigation is moving slowly. It's interesting hmm. from a from a prosecutor's perspective, from a uh, somebody like myself who's dealt with very complex investigations, to see uh, four. Uh, individuals charged, two of whom have already pled guilty, uh, a very substantial and complex indictment having been um, handed down by the grand jury against Paul Manafort and Rick Gates well, it, in just uh, a number of months. That actually, I, I would say, is, is moving quite, um, quite deliberately uh, and, and really relatively rapidly when you look at complex investigations in the white collar realm, mm -hmm. right? So we're not talking violent crimes here. We're talking about sophisticated uh, white collar um, crimes, right? Or the allegations of them. Right? In the case, certainly in the case of uh, Gates and Manafort, the money laundering, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So, because that requires uh, the assembling of lots of information, 
bank records, financial transactions, et cetera, that takes a lot of detailed work and investigation, right? So I think that this this investigation is proceeding methodically, deliberately, but quite swiftly when you look at what it takes as a prosecutor, as an investigator, to assemble that material, go through it, understand it, interview those witnesses, et cetera. Uh, and I also think it is, it is moving along in the traditions of what the Justice Department and the FBI is supposed to do, which is to follow the facts and follow the law. So they um, uh, get the information, follow the financial trails, follow the transactions, interview the witnesses, understand what it has happened, hear from them, amass that information, digest it. Uh, and, you know, you take something like the Flynn uh, plea deal. There's been lots of discussion about what should we take from that? What yeah, does what that mean? Yeah, what should we take from it? What does it mean? What it means is that um, the investigators and the prosecutors on the, in the office of the special counsel and Bob Mueller's team, you can bet that they have spent hours and hours with Mr. Flynn's lawyer and Mr. Flynn himself to understand exactly what it is he knows, what he can tell them, how he can advance the investigation uh, beyond what we've seen in the public papers surrounding his own guilty plea. So the paper record that we have as a public with regard to Flynn's plea deal and what he has signed up to admitting, I believe that's a fraction of what they, what he has told the Mueller team and what they know. Wow. No, keep going. I didn't mean to because interrupt. Because what he has signed up to is something that uh, he makes a factual statement uh, to the judge to ensure that the judge believes he is making a knowing, uh, uh, credible admission of guilt and that what he has signed up to amounts to a crime. That's the the paper record that we're seeing in front of, uh, in the public domain right now to sign him up, as we say in the prosecutorial biz, to be a cooperating witness with the government. But he is having, I'm quite confident, lots of discussions both before that plea deal was signed up to and he uh, stood in front of the court to take responsibility. And going forward, he'll be spending a lot of time with the prosecutors, basically serving as a tour guide, if you will, to the time both in the campaign. You got to remember, this is a guy who was at the senior most level throughout the campaign, through the transition, right. and for the early days, the first 24 days in his case, uh, before he left the White House. So he can provide insights through all of that time at the senior, at the senior most level. And that's what prosecutors do. They'll sign up an individual who can provide that insight and then basically have them uh, serve as a tutor, if you will, for uh, other aspects of the investigation to give them leads, et cetera. Wow. There's so much in there that I would love to keep going down, but I I have to end the the interview um, with a a question about the Justice Department. Um, As you said before, you you were there. You're you're a prosecutor. Two things. Can the Justice Department survive the pressure that it's getting um, from the White House, particularly from the president, from that end? And then from the other side, can the Justice Department as an institution 
survive if the president, if President Trump follows through and fires Robert Mueller before um, Mueller can do anything that is politically or legally damaging to the president? Uh, well, first, on your on your second question, I think that if uh, the president would try to fire Bob Mueller, and of course, and lots of legal experts have written about this, uh, how that would actually go, most likely, is he'd have to um, order Rod Rosenstein, who's the acting attorney general for the purposes of the special counsel's investigation, that Rod Rosenstein being the current deputy attorney mm-hmm. general, but since Jeff Sessions has recused, Rod Rosenstein serves as the attorney general for that matter and oversees the work of Bob Mueller and his, um, and his team. So the president would most likely have to order Rod Rosenstein to fire Bob Mueller. And if, um, and if he were to do so, and if we're, that were to follow through, I think that would be a real crisis of legitimacy for the rule of law in this country. Uh, and everything we've heard uh, from Rod Rosenstein to this point is that he doesn't believe there's any basis for that. But I do think that would present uh, a profound crisis. Um, and you might see something akin to the Saturday Night Massacre that we mm-hmm. saw during the Watergate um, uh, era. On your first question, which I think is very important, and, and where I come at it is this. I believe the Justice Department will survive uh, this era as it has survived others uh, coming under great strain and efforts for political influence. It shouldn't have to. Uh, the Justice Department Uh, What people should know, your listeners should know, is one of the greatest institutions of our government. It serves a unique role. It is the only agency, only department in the federal government that has to serve a dual hat. It has to at once be an independent investigator and prosecutor with the FBI serving that investigative function and uh, career prosecutors uh, serving that prosecutorial function. And those functions have to be completely isolated and independent of any political influence. But by the same token, they also serve a policy function. Presidents can say, my priority is enforcing X type of crime, and that's where I want the resources uh, being deployed. And that's right, and that's appropriate. So for uh, as long as it's been in existence, the Justice Department has had to fulfill both functions, and its leadership has always... Uh, now, there's been ups and downs, quite certainly, but at bottom, the thing that has that has really grounded the Justice Department is is knowing that unique role and having leaders that treasure it and guard it. And remember, it's a uh, it's a department of more than 100,000 professionals. the de- The political ranks are really small in comparison, and they will. Uh, that's what elections are for, uh, and they change. But the men and women of the Justice Department. Uh, are some of the most uh, incredible and dedicated public servants that I have ever served with in career ranks for uh, for decades. And I believe they are strong enough to withstand this, but they need a leadership that is true to uh, its founding and grounding principles. Lisa Monaco, former assistant to the president for Homeland Security and Counterterrorism under President Obama, a distinguished senior fellow with the Center on Law and Security and the Center for Cybersecurity at New York University. Thank you very much for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And how about doing me a huge favor? 
Subscribe, rate, and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ. If you like Cape Up, you should check out some of our other great podcasts. Like Can He Do That? with Allison Michaels, a podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency. Or try Constitutional, a series about how people have framed and reframed the Constitution over time from host Lillian Cunningham. You can find these shows anywhere you listen to podcasts and learn more online at WashingtonPost.com slash podcasts. The Washington 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 Post. Post.